Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Muhammad al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, is one of the most famous Muslim thinkers in history. His autobiographical account, The Deliverer from Error, tells us of his spiritual crisis and transformative experience of journeying, which led to his subsequent life as a pious recluse. From this experience, al-Ghazali wrote his magnum opus, The Revival of the Religious Sciences, filled with mystical knowledge. At least that is how it's generally been read in the Euro-American tradition, Kenneth Garden, associate professor at Tufts University, re-examines Al-Ghazali's work from a historical hermeneutical perspective in the first Islamic reviver, Abu Hamad Al-Ghazali and his revival of religious sciences, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Garden outlines the social and political context of Al-Ghazali's life, demonstrating he was an active participant in the Seljuk Empire. A close reading of the revival of religious sciences reveals Al-Ghazali's promotion of a revivalist vision of the tradition, which he called the science of the hereafter. Garden also presents the strategies Al-Ghazali utilized to campaign for the revival, the tactics of his opponents, and the historical context that may force us to rethink the purpose of his autobiography, The Deliverer from Error. In our conversation, we discussed Al-Ghazali's social and political life, his relationship to philosophy and mysticism, the connections between his early and later writings, the content of the revival of religious sciences, accusations against him and his legal trial, and what led to the widespread popularity and influence of Al-Ghazali's work. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kenneth Garden. Welcome, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Now, it's our tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies to find out a little bit about our authors. So before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, training, how you got interested in Islamic studies? Yeah, so my route to Islamic studies was kind of roundabout, actually. Um, When I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, I went uh, on a junior year abroad in Germany. So I was spending a year in Bonn, which at the time was the capital of West Germany still. And I lived in a dormitory that was further away from the university, kind of on the outskirts of the town. And a lot of my fellow uh, dorm mates were um, so Syrians, Palestinians, Jordanians who had come to Germany to study because you could do that for free. There was no tuition charged. And I lived in a, um, you know, instead of having a cafeteria, every five rooms shared a kitchen and a bathroom. So some of my kitchen mates um, were, were Palestinian and this was during the time of the first Intifada, and I had never really given any thought to the region at all, to the Middle East. And um, But talking to them and meeting some of their friends, I got interested in modern politics. And when I went back to the University of Wisconsin at the end of a year, I, I had an intention to continue studying modern history, modern politics, only to find that nobody on the faculty there at the time taught that. Uh, but Stephen Humphreys, who's now at uh, you know, University of California, Santa Barbara, he was there at the time teaching classes on medieval Islam. 
So I got interested, you know, through the, these classes in uh, medieval history. I started studying uh, Arabic at the time with Dustin Cowell at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, later, you know, I finished graduate school. I went back to Europe for a while. I taught English in the former Czechoslovakia and in the former East Germany in Dresden. And for a time, I'm considered, you know, continuing with comparative literature, which is something I'd done as a uh, as an undergraduate and, and maybe German literature, but then decided to go back to the uh, to the to continue with my studies of, of Arabic. So I did that in uh, you know, taking more classes, you know, back living in Madison, Wisconsin. Again, I took some classes with Michael Chamberlain, who had replaced Stephen Humphreys. And I started studying Arabic, continuing Arabic at the University of Chicago in the summer during their summer program. And eventually was admitted to graduate school there, again, intentioning, you know, with, with the intention of focusing on history. Um, and I was caught up with the romance of Al-Andalus at the time, of Muslim Spain, as they say. So I went to Madrid for a couple of months in November of, or in, in, this, in the fall of 1998 and met Maribel Fierro at, the, um, at a research institute there in, in Madrid. And she suggested that I work on the burning of, uh, of Rosali's uh, revival of the religious sciences, uh, which, according to some sources, happened in Cordoba in, in, um, in 1109. So I came back to the States and started working on, on the burning. Again, this is going to be more of a history project. Uh, but I started to drift away from the burning itself since there weren't great sources, uh, you know, there weren't very many detailed descriptions of it and started to get, you know, more interested in, in studying the revival. And also then a short work that Rosali had written um, uh, defending the revival. And some people had suggested that since his only known critics were these Andalusis, um, that this might be a, res a response he had written to the burning of the revival in Cordoba. So, um, you know, reading that, I discovered that it couldn't have been a response to the burning in Cordoba. Um, then I you know, kind of connected that, re that, that refutation of, of his critics to um, a, a controversy described in his letters that Joseph Van Ness had written about. Um, and that took me into studying the revival, studying, you know, um, controversies over it. And, and um, you know, and, and that led me more into an Islamic studies direction, you know, into studies of, uh, of the Islamic you know, religious tradition and less of, of, of social history, although I guess the social historical aspect has always been a part also of my, um, you know, my, my religious studies interest. Yeah, it's really interesting how this project took you along. Now, in, in the book that you wrote, uh, you begin with the autobiography of Al-Ghazali, and some of our listeners, while they may have heard of him, um, may only know of him through this autobiography or even just kind of short introductions. Can you tell us a little bit about how he presents himself in this autobiography and how uh, Western academics have understood and interpreted this biography? Yeah, so the biography, um, it's a short work of his called The Deliverer from Error, literally The Deliver Deliverer from Error, although it's usually been translated as The Deliverance from Error. Um, the book has been popular in Western, among Western audiences, and especially, I think, in the English-speaking world. Um, there are translations into most other European, so major European languages, um, but there are five, no fewer than five translations into English, which is really quite surprising. 
Um, and in this book, Rosali talks about his own, uh, you know, it's, it's some people present it as an autobiography, although most of the things that we would think of uh, or expect to find in an autobiography aren't in it. We don't hear anything about his childhood or his family or his parents or anything like that. It's really more of a uh, trying to give a, a context for the develop, development of his own, you know, um, thought. Uh, it's, it's, some have called it an intellectual autobiography. Um, and, he, and he does so in pretty compelling terms. Um, he talks about two crises that occurred in his life, um, a youthful crisis of skepticism where he started to wonder how it was that he could know what he knew um, and slowly beginning to, you know, to doubt one certainty after the next um, where he you know, began to doubt um, sense perception, you know, since astronomical proofs showed that although a star might seem to be only the size of a coin, in fact, it was larger than the entire Earth and so on. Um, and then even uh, logic, you know, that, or, or mathematical proofs, um, so that, that, that 10 is larger than, um, you know, than 3. He began to doubt even this and, and fell into a crisis of radical skepticism, um, which he said he suffered through for about two months, um, in which he, you know, couldn't really accede to the truth of anything. But he says that eventually he was cured of this, not by any of his own uh, efforts, but because of a light that God cast into his heart. Um, and after that, uh, his life work was to try to find a, a criterion for the truth. And he said that there were four schools of thought in his age that offered this uh, this criterion, and they were the, the theologians, the Motekalimun, uh, the philosophers, the Ismaili Shiites, uh, and then the Sufis, that, or, or mystics, I guess they're often called. So he looked at these schools one by one, and he says that he, um, uh, he rejected them one by one. Um, he eliminated them as possible paths to the truth. Um, the, the theology, he said, was fine for refuting heretics, but really wasn't, didn't offer a, a sure path to the truth. He assessed and then rejected philosophy. Um, he assessed and rejected the claim of the Ismaili Shiites to have a divinely guided and therefore infallible leader or imam. Um, and finally, he came to assessing the, the claims of the Sufis uh, and agreed that theirs was a path to the truth. Um, but having made this realization uh, was one thing and actually acting on it, becoming a Sufi, uh, putting Sufi uh, you know, practices to work in his own life was something else. And he said that at times he would wake up in the morning, um, you know, with a resolve to leave his worldly success. He was, a, you know, at that time he was the um, the head, uh, you know, professor at, at the the Nidhamiya College or Madrasa in Baghdad at the time, one of the most prestigious centers of learning in the Muslim world at the time. Um, he says to, that he had some three hundred students. Um, and that, uh, you know, he found it very, he found it very difficult uh, to leave this prestigious position of his. And as he you know, would sometimes try to convince himself, he felt he had an obligation to his students also. Um, but finally, he said that, uh, you know, he, he sort of wavered back and forth on this. But finally, he said God sealed the matter for him um, by, first of all, robbing him of his ability to speak. And so he could no longer teach his students and then robbing him of his power of digestion. So he couldn't eat anymore. The doctors despaired of a cure. Um, they thought that there was there was no saving him, but he knew what the root of this crisis was, and therefore he knew how to go about solving it. And he gave up his um, his his position. He told uh, the caliph that he was going away um, on pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, but in fact, what he did was to um, go away to Damascus first, um, where he practiced the Sufi path and 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 found and confirmed what what he had come to believe about it that it was a path to sure knowledge. 
Um, and you know that that he was healed then by this uh, this pursuit of, of the Sufi path. Um, and after two years, he writes of spending about two years um, in the Levant. Um, and after about two years, um, his children uh, needed him back, and, and so he answered the call of his family as as he felt was his duty. And he returned uh, to his home region in, of Khorasan, northeastern Iran, to the, the town of Tus. And spent about 10 years there, again, pursuing um, in that he said that, of course, um, many of, uh, you know, there were many issues that came up that he had to address, but that um, in stolen moments, and he was able to continue to practice Sufism. And, you know, he, he's reaped the benefits of that. And then he felt uh, a need to return uh, to teaching again. Um, he had left his, his position in, in 488. And in 499, then he was summoned to return to teaching uh, by the Sultan Sanjar um, in Nishapur. And he had been at the Nidhamiya Madrasa uh, you know, ba- uh, in Baghdad. Now he was returning to the Nidhamiya Madrasa in Nishapur, um, a, 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 a college, a madrasa founded by his former patron, Nidham al-Mulk. Um, but he felt that um, this experience that he had had along the way, you know, he argues that the experience he'd had along the way of assessing the claims of different schools of thought and learning how to refute false claims and learning how to recognize true claims had given him a, uh, a skill that his, um, you know, a divinely granted skill ultimately that his age needed um, and that he knew that, um, that God had guided him to. And he also felt, um, you know, on, on his own uh, judgment and also on the judgment of some of his contemporaries um, that he might be the renewer um, of the of the fifth Islamic century. So there was a hadith, a saying of the prophet that said that uh, God will send uh, to his community um, at the head of every century whosoever whosoever will renew for it the affairs of its religion. And from this then um, comes the tradition of the mujaddid or the renewer that every century will see a renewer. And there are different interpretations of this. Um, and you know, so he felt that that he was a divine um, renewer of of his of his century, um, and again that his return to teaching um, was a. Uh, although he, you know, before had left his position and thought that he was the last person in the world ever to return to officially sanctioned teaching again, he felt that he, um, that that God had had guided him, um, you know, to to his position in life, and that it was a, a divine mandate for him to take up this this task that had he had been appointed to, and to you know share the fruits of his. Uh, of his introspection and share the fruits of his studies um, with with a world that was badly in need of guidance at the time. Um, so this is a picture of Rosali that re- that emerges from from the reviver. And of course, part of what you're doing in the book is <clears throat> reassessing this in light of uh, it being written at the end of his career. And um, earlier in the book, you you give us a kind of a pre-crisis snapshot, um, an intellectual account. Uh, based on one of his earlier texts. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. So could you, you talk about this, the scale of action is this text. And uh, here it gives us a, a snapshot of some of his thoughts on things like mysticism and philosophical mm-hmm. thought and gives us a, a portrait of him at this pre-crisis period. Could, can you frame this for us? Yeah. Yeah. So in the, the, um, the reviver, uh, or not the reviver, but rather the uh, the deliverer from error. So we see Razali uh, talking about his own, um, you know, deliberations on the eve of leaving teaching, right? And that um, he, 
says that he, you know, he had, had, had embraced Sufism and that he really, um, he, he was racked with doubts, you know, about whether he could leave or not leave. Um, and, you know, he had recognized the truth of Sufism, but he hadn't actually put it in, into practice, you know, to, to, you know, and until you put it in, into practice, of course, it's only then that you can really, um, you know, sort of reap the fruits of, of, of Sufi practice. Um, so he sees him, you know, he presents himself as somebody, you know, sort of racked with doubt about whether he, you know, he can take up the Sufi practice or not. And, and somebody who hasn't really, you know, uh, come to any solid insights based on Sufism yet since he hasn't practiced it. And so um, looking at the revival of the religious sciences, I, I had, you know, some doubts originally. And I guess we, like, I'll talk about these later, about whether it really was simply Sufism that he had come to practice later on. Um, and one of the things that I did um, was, was to look at a, since the revival is a work of ethics um, that he started writing and reading from even, you know, really within months of, of leaving Baghdad. Um, this was an expression of his post-Baghdad vision um, that if I looked at another work of ethics that he finished writing almost immediately before leaving Baghdad, that it would be interesting to compare and see what sort of continuities or discontinuities there was in his, you know, in, in his Baghdad thought and his, and his post-Baghdad thought. And the um, and, and you know if his um, his thinking at the time um, you know is accurately described in the Deliverer from Error, then you'd expect you know many of these uncertainties of his to be reflected in, in the the Mizan Lamal in, in his um, uh, scale of action. Um, and I found that that really wasn't the case. And that if you look at the scale of action, he's talking about a very different set of concerns. He starts the book by talking about the necessity of pursuing um, asaada or asaada al-ukhrawiya, which is often translated in, in English as, as felicity, and, and and felicity in the hereafter. Now, now, what is felicity? Um, this is a a concept that really comes from the philosophical tradition, um, and one of the thinkers who had elaborated on this idea of felicity um, and, and whose fingerprints are all over, you know, Rosali's thought is the uh, Persian philosopher um, Ibn Sina, um, whose works were translated into uh, Latin were very uh, influential also in the Western Christian tradition where he was known as Avicenna. And Ibn Sina had um, taken this idea. Uh, the idea of felicity in the hereafter was uh, common in the philosophical tradition and this is different from simple salvation. Um, Ibn Sina believed that common believers, you know, who uh, you know who who follow the law and um, you know and and practice their rituals and and did not commit any, any grave sins, would have najat or salvation in the hereafter. But he also held, like philosophers, that there was a higher kind of uh, afterlife uh, that could be achieved. This is is felicity. Um, and in some ways, this is a, I, I think you could be understood as a, a kind of a, a, a direct translation from, you know, the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia, um, only really understood in, in the hereafter. Felicity is not a matter simply of enjoying the kinds of pleasures that are described in the, in the Quran, often in bodily terms, but was it so understood rather as, a, as a, a completely non-physical, completely intellectual pleasure in the hereafter. Um, and the substance of this is to um, to behold God, to contemplate God, um, you know, for all of eternity in the hereafter. And God uh, being the most perfect uh, entity um, in, in existence um, is also the, the being uh, most worthy of love. So to contemplate God is also to feel a love of God. 
Um, the love of, that, that one feels for God um, equals the, the knowledge one has of God. And as one contemplates God, um, you know, a, a limitless, infinite being um, over all of eternity, the knowledge of God constantly grows, and with it then constantly grows um, the, the love that you feel for God, and therefore, you know, thereby the, the felicity that, that you experience in the hereafter. And this felicity, uh, this knowledge of God is achieved according to the philosophical path um, in a, through a twofold method. Um, on the one hand, there is what was called the, the practical science. And within the practical science, the practical science um, had three subdivisions, politics, economics, economics being the um, how to run a household, and ethics. Um, and, then it, and, and then in addition to that, there was a the theoretical science. And this was using um, the syllogism, using logic, um, using rationality to uh, understand the workings of the universe, um, the, um, the architecture of the universe, and through understanding the architecture of the universe, then to understand the architect or, or God. Um, the practical science, especially ethics, was necessary because we live in a physical world here, and to inhabit a physical world, we have to have a physical body. Um, but the, this, this causes certain problems because the body um, has its own requirements. Um, for the body to protect itself against predators or enemies, um, where the, the body has to have the faculty of anger. Um, and because the body, uh, you know, bodies need to reproduce themselves, um, there's also an appetite for sex. Bodies have to nourish themselves, and therefore there's an appetite for food. Um, and from these then can spring, um, so, you know, rage, um, lust, gluttony, um, things that root us in the body and, and the requirements of the body. Um, and turn us away from the telos, from the purpose for which we've been created, which is to pursue knowledge of, of God and therefore and thereby felicity. So um, what you have to do then is pursue um, ethics. Um, the, the, the branch of the practical science, the most important for the pursuit of felicity is ethics. And that is to try to order um, the self in such a way that the rational faculty, you know, our faculty of reason, subordinates um, the, the, the passions um, the, the appetites and anger. Um, and once they're subordinated and, and put into their proper role, um, then our rational faculty is left free to pursue knowledge of God. Um, so once the, um, the practice, once ethics has, has done its work and the, um, the, the correct ordering of our psychology has been achieved, you know, with, with, uh, the rational faculty sub, uh, dominating the, the, uh, the appetites and anger, then we can then begin to pursue the, the theoretical, um, science and, and start pursuing knowledge of God, um, and this is really um, in some. Uh, this is this is ultimately neo neoplatonism, neoplatonism. Um, but the uh, some of the ideas are, are simply platonic. Um, when we look around the world, you know, we see certain things, you know, physical entities in the world like trees, but we can abstract from these these entities their form or platonic form um, of treeness. Um, and, you know, again, looking at, at the, the, the world, we can begin to understand the world of the forms um, and then, you know, beyond the world of the forms, the different sort of celestial entities, the spheres and so on, um, and eventually rise from the physical world in which we are, we, we find ourselves in this life towards the immaterial, you know, intellectual world um, of, of the different um, spheres and, and, and of God. Um, so this is this is the um, this is and, and ultimately, of course, we, we want to, to seek God for the for the sake of, of felicity, you know, for his own sake, but also, you know, for, for felicity. So this then is the, um, the, the the philosophical school. And when when Rosali writes about um, about felicity, the necessity of pursuing felicity in the hereafter, this is really a philosophical idea that, that he's um, that he's elaborating on here. 
But in the Mizan, he also says that there are two different ways, two different schools of pursuing felicity. And one is the school of, and the term he uses here is theoreticians, nadhar. Now, I don't have time to get into it here, but I argue in the book that by nadhar, he really means uh, philosophy or philosophers. Um, the the nadhar, the theoreticians, are philosophers. Um, not just any philosophers, but you know those philosophers whose practices he, he agrees with. Um, and the other school then is Sufism. Um, now, as we've seen in the um, in the philosophical approach, you have this this um, this two track uh, uh, pursuit of felicity through ethics or the practical science and also the theoretical science. And he says that what distinguishes the Sufis from the philosophers is that they pursue uh, the practice that they pursue ethics, the practical science alone, um, and that by um, undertaking Sufi practices, they can um, overcome their their appetites you know, to, to such an extent um, that at some point um, knowledge will be spontaneously revealed to them. Um, so rather than gradually accumulating knowledge the way that philosophers do, um, the Sufis, the, the Sufi method is to pursue uh, practice alone, ethics alone, um, but in a much more extreme way, um, and eventually um, hoping to have this kind of mystical insight, this sort of you know, moment of, of immediate revelation of all the, the same kind of knowledge that philosophers can achieve. Now, these two schools are not equal um, in, in Razali's eyes. Um, in his discussion of these two schools, he says that he, he has a chapter called the, 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 the primary of the two paths, or the, the, the superior of the two paths. And there he says that um, really, you, on the one hand, he says that there is no superior of the two paths, that it really depends on, uh, on the individual and which path they're more suited to. So he says that if you want to pursue the path of the theoreticians and read here philosophers, again, this is my argument, um, that you have to come to the practice of, of uh, when you're young enough. Um, if you're too old, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, as they say. So if you're too old, you won't be able to, you know, to, to learn um, the, the, this, this method, this philosophical method. Um, secondly, you have to be smart enough to do it. Um, so, you know, not everyone has the, has the intelligence, the intellect to pursue the philosophical method. This is a second criteria. And the third criterion is that you have to have a qualified instructor. So if you don't meet any, uh, these, all of these three criterion, um, if you're not smart enough or you're not young enough or you don't have a qualified instructor, then you should pursue the Sufi path. But he goes on to say that he gives a, a critique, though, of the Sufi path from the perspective of the theoreticians. And the critique is that um, a Sufi, you know, if they come to a certain insight, um, the insight they come to might actually be a delusional insight. It might not be a, a true insight into the nature of things. And whereas a philosopher has um, syllogistics, has, you know, has logic, a way of, um, of interrogating this insight and determining whether it's true or not, um, you know, he says that within a, within a minute, you know, that they can, they can see through a delusional insight that a, a Sufi doesn't have this tool um, at their disposal. And he says in the, um, you know, in the scale of action that they can be captive, held captive to, to this insight for 10 years. Now in the same passage, as it appears in the, in the revival, he says 20 years. Um, this could be a copyist's error or something, but, but it's interesting to see that, 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 that change, that minor change. Um, they also, he also gives another critique, which is that the, the ascetic practices practiced by Sufis, you know, fasting and so on, long periods of isolation, long periods of, of, of prayer and so on, can also um, lead to, you know, to confusion and bodily illness, um, and that this is also not very productive in, in, in trying to, you know, to pursue 
Felicity. Um, so ultimately, you know, he he sees two possible paths to, to pursue, but it seems quite clear that his own preference is, is for the philosophical path. And then he points to a third possibility, and that is that somebody who has pursued the philosophical path um, at, to its end and really come to all of the insight that one can come to through the philosophical path, he says, and he shows some hesitation here. He, this is a tentative suggestion, it seems to me. He says, um, there is no harm at that point. Um, in pursuing the Sufi path as well. It might possibly lead to further insights still. And he gives an interesting uh, so parable uh, that we find also in the, in the revival of the religious sciences. He says, um, he talks about a contest held um, by a king who decided to see um, which of two artisans, groups of artisans, was more skillful. Um, he invited a group of Byzantine artisans and a group of Chinese artisans and wanted each of them to decorate a wall within a large hall. So the, um, the Byzantines were given one wall to decorate, and across the hall, you know, immediately opposite, was the, the wall that the Chinese were given to decorate, the, the Chinese artisans. And so a curtain was drawn between the two groups so that they couldn't see one another. Uh, the Byzantines asked for all sorts of exotic pigments and brushes and so on, and began to, you know, to paint the wall um, that they had been given to decorate. And the Chinese asked only for polishing materials, materials for polishing um, and this, everyone was quite surprised at this, but they obliged. They went ahead and gave them the polishing materials. Um, and then uh, at some point down the road, the Byzantines announced that they had completed their, their wall, that their design was done. And the Chinese um, announced then immediately upon hearing this that theirs was done as well. And everyone was also surprised about this coincidence. But then they drew back the curtain between the two walls and everyone was able to see the beautiful pattern that the Byzantines had painted in, in their wall. Um, and on the other side of the wall, um, you could see the Chinese. Um, what they had done, the Chinese artisans, was to polish the wall to a mural-like finish. Um, and, if, and, and it reflected, therefore, since it was immediately you know, opposite the Byzantine wall, um, it, it mirrored the Byzantine pattern. But because the wall had been polished to such a brilliant finish, um, the, the reflection in the Byzantine, or in, in the Chinese, the wall that had been polished by the Chinese, was more dazzling and brilliant yet um, than the wall that had been painted by the Byzantines. Um, and so, on the one hand, this suggests that, you know, obviously the, the Byzantines, this is the philosophical path, the, the Chinese, this is the, the Sufi path. Um, and it suggests that they come to the same insight, um, but that the, um, the, the, the direct witnessing um, of the Sufis may be more, more dazzling, um, you know, more impressive still than that of the, of the philosophical path. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great story too. Now, um, the revival of the religious sciences, Al Ghazali uh, elaborates in great detail on many of these topics. He also reclassifies many of these ideas, um, presenting them in new terminological perspectives. Um, and he really, uh, you argue, highlights this idea of revival in this text. Um, right. So could you give us kind of a brief snapshot of uh, what this text looks like? Um, it's a magnum opus. Um, and then how this idea of revival is presented. Right. Yeah. So one more comparison with the with the um, with the scale of action is, is useful here. Um, one of the things one of the passages there that really struck me um, just in revealing Razali's mindset um, and, and where what he saw his mission as um, in the scale of action still, he says, he, he complains that, you know, although 
the telos of, of, uh, of human life, the very purpose for which we were created is to seek felicity, that most human beings are uh, don't not only don't pursue it, but aren't even aware um, of, of this uh, most necessary of all uh, of all tasks. Um, and he says that this is because, um, you know, their appetites are constantly upon them and they, they're they're uh, so sort of turned away you know, from from this from this purpose. And he says that the only person who could awaken them to this vital necessity would be a. Uh, a preacher of faultless conduct, um, and the world is empty of them, he says. And, and my sense in reading this, and especially in looking later at the, at the revival of the religious sciences, is that Razali saw himself as this preacher of flawless conduct. Um, the, the, the Razali that emerges from the scale of action is not a man who's, you know, who's tormented with doubt or, or, or standing you know, um, ambivalently between different paths and wondering what to do. Um, he's calling, summoning other people to pursue felicity. And I think you can only conclude that he was quite confident about his own achievements um, in this to begin with. And insofar as he favors the philosophical school in the scale of action, it seems quite clear that you know, his achievement, such as it had been at that point, was through philosophy. And he tells another interesting story there. He says that his knowledge about the Sufi path comes from a, um, a Sufi um, a, a Sufi authority that he had consulted. And he said he had consulted him about a Sufi practice of, of con- continuously reviving, or, I'm sorry, continuously reciting the Quran. And that the Sufi authority had forbidden him. He said that, um, you know, he, the Sufi path requires complete uh, commitment. And insofar as you're still, you know, caught up in concerns of family and career and so on, you're, you're unable to do it. Um, so we see a, a clear statement in the, in the scale of action that he hadn't yet studied he hadn't yet practiced philosophy uh, and that his knowledge of, of the philosophical you know, practice was secondhand um, and that, you know, he seems to have practiced philo- uh, philosophy on the, on the other hand. He hadn't practiced Sufism, but had practiced philosophy. So when it comes to, to the revival of the religious sciences, um, what I see the revival is doing is really taking this, this concern of Rosales, um, not for just spelling out a doctrine, um, but rather for, um, making it uh, the, the, the imperative of pursuing felicity, uh, making this seem evident to his re- readership. I mean, he's trying to win over a, a, a readership um, and trying to convince them of, of the necessity of, of, this, of this task. And this is why you see, you know, the scale of action. I mean, what does this say? Um, you know, it, it's a scale, it's a balance. Um, and this is, again, comes from Aristotelian ethics, but, you know, a, a balance for determining what correct action is. Um, it's not a title that uh, that seems overly uh, ambitious, but if you just stop to to let the you know the the title of the revival of the religious sciences sink in, it's quite an ambitious work. It suggests that the religious sciences of Enrazadi's day were dead, um, and that he is going to set about bringing them back to life. Um, and so, yes, um, the the topic, um, you know, much of this plain discussion about. The about felicity, you know, which is is there from the very beginning in the scale of action. Um, it's it's toned down to a great extent. It's still there, you know, and you can find it in, in many passages throughout the the revival. Um, but it's it's toned down. And whereas in the scale, he refers, he talks, um, you know, of course, the scale is a, a work of um, of, of ethics, um, but he also talks about the theoretical science and refers his his readers to the an, another work of his the. Um, you know, for discussion of, of theory. Um, in the revival of the religious sciences, you know, he really focuses on practice alone, but he's changed the terminology. And so it's, it's debt to 
um, to philosophy isn't as immediately as apparent as it is in the, in the scale of, of action. The overall science that Rosati advocates in the re- revival of the religious sciences is what he calls um, the science of the hereafter, or alm al akhirah in Arabic. Um, and he says that this, the, this, um, um, the science of the hereafter um, has two subdisciplines within it, and these are the science of praxis, um, so the uh, and, and then this, the science of, of unveiling. So, and these seem, it seems to me, are really just you know taking the the two theoretical, the, the two uh, philosophical disciplines that I referred to before: the practical science, al-amali, uh, on the one hand, and the theoretical science, al-amnadari, on the other hand, and sort of repackaging them, retitling them, and then presenting them again in the revival with certain differences. I'm not not insisting that they're. Um, that, that there were no changes in his thought. I think we do see certain certain changes and th- certain things fleshed out in the revival um, in a way that we don't see uh, in the scale of action. Um, he says then that the the the, um, the science of unveiling alma mukashifa um, is not something that you should talk about um, in public. It's really something that's for initiates only, um, for people who have um, have experienced it. Um, and, and, and so he says the science of unveiling or the, the, the theoretical science, if we want to use the, the, the philosophical term, is something he won't be discussing in the revival. Although there are many passages in which he does um, discuss elements of it or, or topics that relate to that um, science of unveiling. Um, and so what he will be f- focusing on is the science of praxis, of muamala. Um, and so this then is, is what he'll be discussing, really ethics, uh, ethics alone. And one of the things that he has to do, you know, so in, in what way then is this a revival of the religious sciences? You know, in, in what way are the religious sciences to be considered dead? And what does it mean to revive them? Well, Rosali writes that the this science of the hereafter used to be the primary concern of the prophet, of course, the companions of the prophet, the Sahaba, um, and also the founders of the four legal schools, the A'ima. Um, so Imam Shafi'i, uh, Malik ibn Anas, um, Abu Hanifa. Uh, and Ahmad ibn Hanbal, and he says that um, that, that pr- you know that pursuing the science of the hereafter—that is to say, pursuing felicity—was um, their primary concern. Um, they were also uh, saw certain secondary concerns um, in order for people to know how to practice their rituals correctly, and also because of the necessity for a law in any society. Law, fiqh, you know, jurisprudence was also seen as a kind of unfortunate necessity. Um, a, a religious science, to be sure, but not the primary focus. Um, and secondly, then, because heresy was always a, a, a something that, that threatened um, the community, um, theology or, or, or kalam was also an unfortunate necessity. Nobody's primary concern, but something that people did secondarily as a service to the community. But he said what happened is that these two sciences then um, went from being um, subordinate sciences to the primary science, the science of the hereafter, and ended up eclipsing the science of the hereafter and becoming the primary focus of religious scholars. And this is because um, by practicing the law, one can become a judge um, and become a, uh, you know, a, a, a prominent figure and, and, and have, you know, authority and, and even wealth um, in, um, you know, by, by practicing the law. Um, and also in the case of, of theology, um, it's, you know, hard to believe this from a 21st century perspective, but apparently um, watching, you know, public theological debate was, was seen as a great entertainment. Um, and so he talks about different um, 
practices of of, the, of public theological debate in which the winner might be you know rewarded you know given given a monetary reward for winning a debate um, and he says in this way then these 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 two these sciences law and theology which he categorizes as in contrast to the other worldly science or the science of the hereafter he refers to these as the sciences of the world the olumid dunya and he says that the the olumid dunya the worldly sciences have eclipsed the science of the hereafter and this is exactly the opposite of the way that things should be so his revival of the religious sciences uh, amounts to restoring the, the, the original state of affairs, making the science of the hereafter the primary focus of the, of the, of the religious sciences once again. Um, that's not to say that the law is unimportant. Um, the first half of the book, the first 20 chapters or kutub books of, of the revival of the religious sciences are mostly devoted to, to legal issues. And this was a great concern of Rosati's in the latter part of his life. Um, um, there were people, philosophers, Sufis, and others who thought of themselves as so intellectually superior that practicing the uh, the the, uh, the five daily prayers and other rituals, fasting during Ramadan, um, that these were no longer incumbent upon them; that they could um, that they could they, they could disregard these requirements. And he refers to them as the Ahlalibahas um, or the the Ebahia, the um, so, so I guess you could translate this as, as antinomians, and this is something that he criticizes. Um, uh, you know, he wrote a tract about this later in life in Persian. Um, one of the books of the Persian version of the revival of the religious sciences, the Alchemy of Felicity, is also um, devoted to a, a critique of these um, of these antinomians. So he insists that. Practicing the law is crucial, and he gives that the first um, ten books of the revival, or you know, or most of the first ten books of the revival, are about how to, you know, practice the rituals in accordance with the law. But he also insists that these rituals um, point beyond themselves; um, that they, that for, on the one hand, they contain guide, divine wisdom, and that practicing prayer, for example, or washing before prayer, tahara, so washing for you know for you know, maintaining ritual prayer for ritual activities. Um, that there is a divine wisdom in this that helps us in, uh, along the path to the hereafter in ways that we can't really understand uh, or explain rationally, but, but nonetheless um, is there. Um, he also says, though, that as you perform, for example, uh, ritual purity, um, it's not enough simply to wash your limbs um, you know, in, in water to, to remove external impurities while your heart, as he says, is full of, of corruption, of, of, um, of, of sin and vice. So you also have to cleanse your interior um, of, of sin and vice, that, that this is implicit um, in, the, in, in the ritual of washing before prayer or, or, or maintaining a state of ritual purity during pilgrimage, for example. And um, it, beyond that, he says that the highest implementation of, of ritual purity is to cleanse the heart of anything but God, to devote yourself to God alone so that your heart, um, which, you know, he also is another way that he has of speaking of the soul, um, so that your heart... Um, has only one concern, which is which is God, and reflecting ultimately the divine reality. Um, and so he takes the law; he insists on its importance. Um, he incorporates it into his larger, you know, um, ethical project and his revivalist project, his his project for trying to achieve felicity in the hereafter. Um, he insists on its necessity, but he also weaves it into his larger um, his larger project and weaves it in also with philosophical and also Sufi ethics. Um, the revival is often taken to be um, a work of Sufism. But in the first book, there's an interesting passage, which um, Alexander Traeger actually called my attention to, 
where Ghazali points out that this science of the hereafter is, is a necessity. It is a, um, it is a, um, a fard, a, an, it's an obligatory science for everyone to pursue, at least for all religious scholars to pursue. Sufism, though, is not an obligatory science. So in other words, the science of the hereafter that he's advocating in the revival is not identical with Sufism. Um, and clearly, Sufism continues to play a role. Um, I think a role um, that's very similar to the role he spelled out for it in the um, in the Criterion for Action. Um, but but it, it's what he's advocating in the revival. The science of the hereafter is not identical um, with Sufism. Um, later in the books, he writes about um, you know. I mean, there, there are large passages that were uh, drawn from from various Sufi thinkers, um, including. Um, Mahasabi um, and, and Abu Talib al-Makki and others. Um, and there, uh, interestingly, the, the passage that I talked about, this comparison between the, the, um, um, the theoreticians or philosophers on the one hand and the Sufis on the other, is reproduced almost um, exactly in the revival. And in the, um, the revival is divided into four quarters, in, into, into 40 books, into four quarters, and also into two halves. And um, Rosali himself writes that the first two books, you know, books 21 and 22 of the revival in, in, um, are the introduction to the second half. And in the first of these, book 21, um, the, uh, the, uh, the book of the wonders of the heart or the marvels of the heart, um, this passage comparing the philosophers to the Sufis that we find in the scale of action is reproduced almost um, word for word um, also in the revival. So this, um, this, this, um, so scheme work, this, this, this framework, this, this schema of Rosales, um did not really change um, from, from the, the scale of action to the revival. Um, it's present in the revival, and it also leads me to wonder whether Book 21 might not have been one of the first ones that Rosali wrote um, after leaving Baghdad. Um, it might have been one of the first that he read from, um, as, he, as you know, there's, there's evidence that he did already um, in Damascus shortly after his arrival there. Now, the social life of this text is largely tied to Al-Ghazali's uh, network of scholars and statements, uh, statesmen. And instead of being an inward-directed spiritual seeker, he was really tied into promoting this text and promoting himself as this reviver. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about this uh, afterlife of the text, I guess? Yeah, well, this is a, a view of Rosali's life that's at odds with a view that I take to be pervasive in our understanding of Rosali um, and in, in much of, you know, the Rosali scholarship. Um, and that is, you know, in one article that I've written, I, I you know, compare him to the wise man on the mountaintop. Um, and that's an image that we have. It's, it's a, you know, a Western image, right, of the, um, you know, the, the, the seeker goes, you know, trekking in the Himalayas. You know, he comes up to a mountaintop and he sees a man, you know, sort of sitting um, you know, in, you know, cross-legged, um, you know, being wise and, and there to dispense wisdom, um, you know, so divorced of any sort of worldly concerns. Um, it's, a, a, you know, an image, if you saw the recent Star Wars movie, you know, at the end of the recent Star Wars movie, um, we, we find Luke Skywalker off on some remote planet um, <laughs> on a mountaintop, you know, sitting there, you know, and he is standing there when, when, when the, the character comes up and wants to give him his lightsaber back. Now, what has he been eating all this time? Where has he been living? Where do his clothes come from? Um, who does he talk to? Uh, none of these kinds of, of questions you know, are, are answered. And it seems to me that this image of Rosali is, is the, the solitary wanderer, the solitary spiritual seeker is very much in lines with this, 
um, this trope of, of the, the wise man on the mountaintop. But if you look at Rosali's life, um, as it emerges from, you know, from uh, biographies of him, including with biographies written by um, uh, the contemporary, his contemporary, Abdul Rafael al-Farisi, um, and also by looking at his letters, um, his letters that have been, been preserved um, in, in mostly in Persian, um, a very different image of Rosali emerges. And far from being somebody, you know, a sort of solitary, you know, inward directed spiritual seeker concerned mi- mainly with his own salvation. Um, I see him rather as somebody who had a very, um, you know, outward directed uh, agenda, um, a project, a, a revivalist project. Um, he didn't just write the book and let it speak for itself. He, he actively tried, you know, to promote it in ways that come across uh, in his letters. Now, Rosali, from the very beginning of his um, uh, of his career uh, was worked very closely with um, political figures in the Seljuk Empire. Um, he was a protege of Nidham al-Mulk um, and spent, I think, the first six years of his career living in Nidham al-Mulk's court in Esfahan. And uh, when he came to Baghdad in the first place to take up his position at the Nidhamiya Madrasa, which his patron, Nidham al-Mulk, had founded, um, Nidham al-Mulk fired two other instructors to make room for him there. So the fact that he took up this position was, was no accident. Um, it was something, it was a very conscious choice made uh, by, by Nidham al-Mulk. Um, Razali, when he was there, uh, spoke, you know, he had audiences with the Sultan, with Malik Shah, with... Um, uh, with Nidham al-Mulk, of course, with the caliph. He was very well connected then in, in, in these circles. He knew many of the sons of Nidham al-Mulk. After Nidham al-Mulk's assassination, he, he maintained his correspondence with, um, with some of the sons of Nidham al-Mulk, and some of these letters survive. Um, and he used his networks for various aims. Um, he used, you know, during this time of his wandering, right, we often think of him, you know, sort of wandering alone through the desert, but we know that he had at least one companion. There's a man um, who he writes about, Ebrahim Sabak, um, who he writes of as being his, his companion throughout all of his travels. Um, and this man is living in Georgian, I believe, and Razali writes um, to one of the sons of Nidham al-Mulk and asks that, um, that he help him out in, in his career and maybe help him out against some of his, his, his enemies. So we can assume that if this Ebrahim al-Sabak was Razali's companion in the post-Baghdad period, um, that he was probably also a fellow traveler um, in terms of his revivalist project as well. Um, and that you know, helping out Ebrahim al-Sabak was about helping a friend, but maybe also helping out a you know, a comrade um, uh, as uh, in, you know, the science of the hereafter. Um, he writes to young people to try to win them over. There are some, there's a, you know, a letter in which he writes to a young person to try to win him over to the study of the science of the hereafter. We see at least one letter where he writes to the father of a student. Um, and you can imagine that, um, you know, many fathers who send their children, you know, off to study religious sciences are hoping that they'll you know, have a, an illustrious career as a judge. Um, and that this idea of them, you know, sort of renouncing law as a science of uh, a worldly science and embracing instead some ascetic science of the hereafter is what every father dreams of for his son. So we see a, a letter in which he writes to a father of one of his students to try to, you know, encourage him to allow him to continue his studies with Razali of the science of the hereafter. Um, and we also see him. And this is quite interesting. I'm writing a letter to Fakhar al-Mulk, um, the son of Nidham al-Mulk, um, who it's quite clear from the letter, is his disciple. Um, he gives him instruction in the science of the hereafter and, in, and then suggests, recommends that for further instruction, he look at Razali's Persian version of the revival, um, his alchemy, alchemy of felicity, 
kimiyoya saadat. Um, and, and it's no coincidence then that when Razali finally did return to teaching in Nishapur um, in 499, it was at the behest of Fakhar al-Mulk. Um, Fakhar al-Mulk didn't just, you know, kind of uh, turn to him as an old, you know, sort of family, well, employee, if you want to look at it that way, um, or as a qualified scholar to take up a position at, at uh, you know, to fill a vacancy at the Nidhamiya. Um, as his disciple, Fakhar al-Mulk knew perfectly well what Razali's revivalist project was. He was on board with it. Um, and we can only think that when he apl- uh, appointed Razali to return to teaching there, um, it was for the sake then of, of um, you know, being able to, you know, to, to promote now from a, from a more official position from this Nidhamiya Madrasa, um, his, his revivalist agenda. Now, with all this uh, historical context coming to light, um, we should then rethink uh, – this text, the deliverer from error. So if we re-examine the deliverer in this new light, what can we conclude about uh, its purpose, its function, uh, and how it's written? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've read the revival and reread, or I mean, I'm sorry, the, the deliverer. I've, I've read and reread this book, you know, over the years, and I, I, I always find new things in it. It's really, it's an ingenious um, work, that, that works on many different levels and many different fronts. It's quite a sophisticated and complicated work. I'm just reading a, uh, an article right now by Tanali Kukonen, um, who looks to it for, um, you know, to see certain sort of systematic positions that Razali is working out in it. There are a lot of things going on in it. But the, the element of the work that I focus on um, is its, um, uh, well, two elements, really. The first is its, um, its role as, um, as an apology, so we know from the letters that once, and also from other sources, that when Razali returned to teaching um, in, in, four, in 1106, in, in 499, 1106, that um, a controversy broke out in, in Nishapur. So we know he was appointed by Fakhar al-Mulk, who is his disciple, but we also know that Fakhar al-Mulk was assassinated shortly after Razali took up his position at the Nivamiya uh, in Nishapur. Um, and then a, a controversy over his thought broke out. And uh, it seems to have been, you know, quite a vicious one. Um, you know, he was um, he was denounced. People wrote fatwas against him. Um, you know, he was he was harassed. Um, we know from one of the letters that he writes um, during the controversy that he was writing not from Nishapur but from Tus. We have to wonder if he might have fled the city. Uh, and we also know from looking, uh, there was a text that I mentioned earlier, Al-Imla fi the, the, the composition on the uh, problems of the revival or, or the, the critiques of the revival um, from a, a, a text that Razali wrote in response to his critics, um, that one of the things that they focused on was his um, uh, an allegory that he gives, a cosmological allegory that he gives in Book 35 of the Revival, um, the Book of uh, Divine Unity and Reliance on God. Um, and uh, it's referred to in short as the allegory of the pens. Um, so, you know, we know also that from this and other sources that Razali was accused of, of a few different things. He was accused of, of philosophical influence. And frankly, you know, based on, you know, many different studies that have been done in recent years and, and, you know, going back, you know, longer than that, um, that Razali himself, you know, was heavily influenced by philosophy and by Avicenna in particular. Um, he was a critic, his was a critical engagement with Avicenna's thought, but still he was heavily influenced by Avicenna. So this, 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 this criticism is true. 
Um, and the other one was that he was accused of being a, an Ismaili. Um, and so when we see him then using, you know, I mentioned there was this, this, this um, schema that he uses of the four classes of the seekers, um, theologians, philosophers, Ismaili, Shiites, and Sufis. Um, it, it's no accident that he adopts this. And, and I, when I say adopt it, um, I, I mean adopt it. As Joseph Van Es pointed out, um, he's not the first one to employ um, this, this schema. It seems to have been kind of, uh, it was used before him and a few, a few years before him by Omar Khayyam, who was from Nishapur and who Razali met and, 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 and talked uh, apparently astronomy with. Um, and so this wasn't, it, it wasn't like this was something that simply emerged you know, organically in Razali's life and he's just passing it on when he wrote The Deliverer. It seems to me that he uses it, um, among other things, as a tool to try to distance himself um, you know, from, from these uh, charges that he was a uh, drawing on philosophy and, and Ismaili Shiism. Um, and so, you know, this, um, you know, also this, this, um, story of the, uh, you know, the, the, the crisis that led him to lead, leave his position in Baghdad, you know, while of course I, I have to, uh, assume that this radical change in his life was, was, had to have been a wrenching one for him. You know, again, my study of the, of the scale of action on the one hand, his pre-crisis, if you want to think of it that way. Um, scale of action on the one hand, and the post-crisis revival of the religious sciences suggests that actually um, the, the the transition in his life and in his thinking wasn't the way he described it in, in the Deliverer from Error, and that he did this again to try to distance himself from these schools of thought that he was accused of adhering to. Um, also, one interesting thing that we learned from his letters is that uh, one of the things that he did after he left Baghdad was to take a series of vows. He went to the tomb of Abraham in Hebron, um, and there he took a vow never again to appear before a ruler, never again to take money from a ruler, um, never again to um, engage in public theological debate. Um, and in one of the tellings, never again to engage in ta'asob or um, partisan fanaticism, um, meaning in the case of Nishapur, Horasan generally at this time, being a fanatical partisan either of the Hanafi legal school or, or the Shafi'i legal school. Um, so this is another important element. You know, uh, it sheds important light, I think, on Anwar Ali's concerns and mindset. Um, you know, at, at this time, that really doesn't find any reflection in the Deliverer from Error. Um, it was a text that was really written, read, written with a different set of concerns in, in mind, um, and especially the one that I focus on here is the concern of distancing, you know, of, of, uh, himself from these schools of thought he had been accused of, of adhering to. Um, and the Deliverer wasn't the only text that he wrote in response to this. Um, he wrote, um, you know, as I mentioned before, the composition on the problems of the revival. Um, so the distinguishing criterion between Islam and masked infidelity, it's been translated this way, Faisala Tafrika Bain al-Islam wa And also, um, during the course of this controversy, he was called for a hearing before the Seljuk king of the East, Sanjar, and after the hearing, after Razali was acquitted by Sanjar, um, he, um, Sanjar went hunting and had some wild game sent to Razali. Razali responded then by writing Nasihate um, Maluk, um, the sort of advice for kings um, for, for Sanjar. So really, um, four of Razali's later texts emerge from this controversy. And, and understanding the controversy and what was at stake in it is really uh, crucial for understanding Razali's later writings. And especially given the central role that the Munkad has, has played in shaping our understanding of Rosali and really giving us this sort of wise man on the mountaintop image of him, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's um, 
you know, it's, it's really vital that we understand the, the, the circumstances in which it was read and what some of its rhetorical aims were so that we can try to sort out um, those elements that, that can guide us to a deeper understanding of Rosalie's thought and some of those elements in his rhetoric that I think lead us astray from a more accurate understanding of what he stood for. Well, Ken, you've written a wonderful book, and I'm sure listeners are eager to hear about what you're working on now. Right. Well, right now I'm returning to something that I worked on in my dissertation. Um, you know, again, this this question of the controversy over Rosali's um, revival in, in Al-Andalus. And, and so I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm finishing up finally an article on that. And uh, it's very interesting that the, the revival played of, and Rosali himself as a figure played very uh, interesting roles in Andalusi politics and the development of, of um, religious thought in Al-Andalus. Um, there, there are a lot of myths that emerged about Rosali uh, favoring different regimes in, in Al-Andalus and in, in the Maghreb in, uh, at the time. Um, so that's, um, that's a short article that I'm working on. Um, longer term, I think I'm going to continue laboring um, on, on Rosali and um, trying to uh, you know, work also with some, with some other scholars and kind of a, a, you know, I'm hoping to work on a, on a group project where we look at Rosali's um, larger corpus and really as a, as a group try to work through it and come up with a more you know, systematic understanding of, of how everything fits, um, uh, you know, how it all fits together. And, and um, you know, uh, my vision of this is, is to use, again, this idea, this, this, this uh, understanding of Rosali as a reviver with an active revivalist agenda to, to see if this can give us a framework for situating some of his different works within this larger project. But we'll see. Maybe, you know, I'll find that that, that um, that project is confounded when we actually deal with the actual texts. So, Well, Ken, good luck. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. That was my conversation with Kenneth Garden, the first Islamic reviver, Abu Hamad al-Ghazali and his revival of the religious sciences, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.